Uh, let's ask God to help us understand his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that there is uh, a word uh, from you to us, a word that reveals your Son, Jesus, and we pray that you would let us see him, know him, and come to love him as we meet him in his word. And help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, from the back blocks to the capital, from a village wedding to the Jerusalem temple, from revelation to a few servants and disciples to capturing the national spotlight. The story of Jesus that John is telling takes a major change in chapter 2, verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Location, audience, style from a self-effacing work of power in turning water into wine, which he'd made known only to, well, his followers and a few servants, to acting boldly, openly and confrontingly on the centre stage of Jewish national life, driving traders from the Jerusalem temple. And this will not be the last of unanticipated changes of Jesus' ministry taking unexpected directions from dealing with Jews to embracing despised Samaritans, from gathering followers to driving them away by uncompromising teaching, from avoiding publicity to provoking confrontation to promising life and giving himself up to death. What prompts these changes? What directs Jesus in his ministry? Is there a plan or is it just random? constantly reacting to circumstances as the movement moves beyond his control. Does Jesus have some kind of agenda? Is it a political agenda? You know, does he act as he does to gain popular support for his position, driven by the need to enlist followers who will promote his teaching ideas and increase his influence? And what motivates him? Is it vanity, just wanting the endorsement of others? Or is it a simple desire for power and influence? Is it perhaps a dissatisfaction with the way things are and a conviction that he can run things better? What directs Jesus in his ministry? What's his motive? What is his goal? Jesus reveals both his motive and his goal in this passage from John we heard read, John 2. These verses record the first of three Passover visits to Jerusalem mentioned in John's Gospel. And on this first visit, we witness the first of two attempts by Jesus to restore the integrity of worship, the worship of God in the Jerusalem temple. This one here at the beginning of his ministry and the other recorded in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke at the end of his ministry in the context of Jesus pronouncing judgment on a rebellious Jerusalem. And in this first visit, in his action, and in his answer to a question, we see what drives Jesus and what he is driving towards. We see his motive and his goal. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem and in the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. 
Now, the Jerusalem temple was not your local church and the Passover wasn't your regular Sunday or even your regular Sabbath. It was the start of the festival of unleavened bread, one of the three occasions in the year when every Jewish male was meant to come up to the temple. Three times a year they were all meant to go up and worship God in the temple. So what Jesus does here will gain the widest publicity as people brought the report of his actions back to their communities, the villages throughout Judah, Galilee and further afield. So this is no sideshow going on in the temple. And to get a feel for the significance of what Jesus does and says here, we need to think about the temple and its place in the life of the Jewish people, how they thought about it, because we're pretty unfamiliar with temples. Well, this was the second temple, the temple that had been rebuilt after its destruction by the Babylonians and then rebuilt again by Herod the Great, who'd expanded and beautified it. But the rebuilt temple continued to have the place in the life of the Jewish people that the first temple, the temple built by Solomon, had had. And that first temple was the successor of the tabernacle, that tent that had travelled with the people of Israel throughout their wilderness wanderings in the Exodus. The tabernacle and then the temple had been given by the Lord who had rescued his people, Israel, from Egypt and it had been given to them as a sign of his presence amongst his people. His presence as their covenant Lord and King. Have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. You see, at the centre of both was the ark in the Holy of Holies and the ark contained the two tablets of the law, the sign that they were God's people to live under God's rule. Now God himself had set the tabernacle and the temple apart for himself when he'd come down in the cloud of glory on each when their construction had been finished at the commencement of worship of each. And so in Exodus 40 we read, Moses couldn't enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And again, 1 Kings 8.11, at the conclusion of the construction of the temple, the priests could not perform this service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled his temple. This was the place where God had made his name to dwell. And so it was seen as the place of access to God, where God would hear your prayer. <coughs> as Solomon prayed at the inauguration of the temple, may your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, this place of which you have said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So the temple was seen as the place of access to God. And the temple was also the place of atonement, where their sins could be dealt with. For this was the only place in Judea where God's altar was located. This was the place where daily sacrifice was to be made, and the place also where the day of atonement sacrifices were made. And of course the temple was not just a place of access and a place of atonement. It was also understood to be a place of revelation. This is what God said to Moses. There above the cover between the two cherubim that over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet you 
meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. As the place of atonement and access and revelation, the place they all had to go to three times a year, the temple was central to the life of God's people and their relationship with their God. And its place and role became celebrated in their songs, the Psalms. It became a place to be longed for and delighted in because it was the house of their God, their Saviour. So just one example, Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even a sparrow, the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. So that was the temple for the Jewish people, the place of God's presence among them that indicated that they were his own people, the place of access to God of atonement where their sins could be dealt with, a place of revelation, the focus and heart of their relationship with their God. And Jesus is now present in the temple at the great celebration of the Passover, present, surrounded by the noise and the smell of livestock. Because all Israel had to gather and because some had to travel far and because they were not to appear empty-handed but were to appear with gifts and sacrifices, the temple authorities provided the means for worship, all that was necessary conveniently on sale in the temple courts. It's like that souvenir shop, you know, that's just right next to the lookout, right? And probably the outermost court of the Gentiles. There you could get sheep, oxen, pigeons, everything. And because... People could only use a special coin, the Tyrian shekel, to pay the temple tax and and not the money that they brought from their homelands. The authorities also conveniently provided money changes in the temple. Now, some might see this as just thoughtful, convenient, making worship easy and a useful way of raising money for the upkeep of the temple and, yes, of course, of the priests who controlled what went on in the temple precincts. They might see it as convenient, but Jesus saw it differently. In the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now Jesus' action wasn't really violent, but it was disruptive. Disruptive to commerce, not to public order, for it draws no intervention from the Roman authorities. It just draws questions. And it wasn't violent. It's the sheep and the cattle he drives out with the whip. And in the absence of a good dog, that would have been pretty hard to move without one. And he makes sure that the work of the money changers is interrupted and that they're encouraged to relocate by overturning their tables as are the dove sellers encouraged to relocate, whose stock is not released. Get these out of here, he says. And why? Why interrupt 
what many might see as a useful and profitable service. Stop turning my father's house into a market. See, Jesus' objection isn't to any corrupt dealing or dishonest dealing trade. It's to the trade itself taking place within the temple, his father's house. His concern is for the honour of his father. And think about it, what was the temple for? Who should decide what was to take place in the temple? Who should rule in the house of God? Well, the temple was the house of God, his dwelling place, as we heard the psalmist call it. It was a gift by him to his people, the place where they could draw near to him, seek his help, sing his praise, meditate on his holiness. Those worshipping him should not be competing with the noise of cattle and sheep, of business and bartering. And God's word should rule in his house. His purpose prevailed. And he'd made no provision for trade, only worship. And the purposes for which he'd given the temple should never have been subordinated to human purposes, displaced for profit or convenience. Jesus could not stand his father being relegated as the focus of temple activity, his worship being displaced or his rule being set aside. Those making provision for trade in the temple courts were in effect breaking the second and third commandments in the place that was most meant to signify God's covenant relationship with his people where all things should be in conformity to his word. That's right, breaking the second and third commandments. The authorities were allowing the worship of money to compete with and displace the worship of God. And they were taking his name in vain, treating God as if he were insubstantial, somebody whose commands could be set aside when it suited their interests. Jesus' heart was jealous for the honour of God's house. He wanted it treated as it should be, the place where God had made his name to dwell the place he had associated forever with his revelation of himself to his people as the living, saving God. To be jealous, zealous for God's house, was to be jealous of and zealous for God's honour, for he had identified himself and his presence with his people, with the temple. To dishonour the place of his presence was to dishonour the Lord himself. And his disciples recognised this seal in Jesus and in so doing recognised him as the king, the one who fulfilled what was spoken of in God's Christ in Psalm 69, which you heard read. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for God and zeal for God's house was the mark of God's true king. This zeal is a driving passion for the honour, the reputation of the Lord of Israel's God who had made the temple the sign of his dwelling with his people. And it's a zeal, a passion for the integrity of the Lord's relationship with his saved people expressed in the worship of the temple. It was a driving passion, a consuming passion that won't be satisfied until its goal, the restoration of God's honour, the integrity of his relationship with his people, was realised. And this is what motivated Jesus in his very public action 
It wasn't a political agenda. It wasn't a desire to harness popular support. It was his passion for the honour of his father. Passion that he be rightly worshipped as the only living, living God. A passion that would burn until Jesus' goal was achieved. A passion that would suffer rather than see God dishonoured, his glory shared. It's this seal too that is seen in Jesus' answer to the question asked of him by the Jews, a term in John which often describes the Jewish authorities. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he'd spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. When the authorities ask for a sign, they're actually demanding that Jesus prove himself to them, meet their criteria before he claims to act for God. This is the demand of unbelief that again seeks to subordinate God to themselves and their judgment. And Jesus responds with the only kind of sign he ever gives to unbelief, the unbelief that demands a sign. Destroy this temple, he says, and I'll raise it again in three days. As the disciples recognised after Jesus' resurrection, he is speaking of the death and rising of his body. And so Jesus points his critics to who he is and what he came to do, revealed fully and finally in his death and resurrection as the vindication of his authority. <laughs> you see, at that time, it will be seen that Jesus is the new temple, destroy this temple, that he is actually the promised temple of the new age. At that time, it will be seen that he is the one in whom God now dwells with his people. He is the place of revelation. He is the place of atonement. And he is the place where God's people gather and in whom they offer true worship. Oh yes, he is the one in whom individuals can draw near to God, be heard by God, find grace and mercy and help from God. Destroy this temple. Jesus, God with us. Now his questioners greet his response with incredulity. They could not contemplate or even imagine such a work for they've already made God small enough to accommodate their plans. Yet at that time, Jesus would be revealed in that death and rising as one greater than they could imagine, one who has all authority to regulate the world let alone what goes on in the temple. Oh, and at that time, this sign they demand will condemn their unbelief. Now, the disciples didn't understand Jesus' answer at the time either, but Jesus did. And in these words, he was revealing here his goal, the goal of his ministry. It was to die and rise again and bring God's people to life in God's presence, life in the house of God, at peace with the holy God. It's to restore integrity to the relationship between God and his people. 
and it's to vindicate the Father's honour as the only saving God. Jesus knew what he had come to do. So what was Jesus' motivation? The honour, the glory of his Father, that he be properly honoured amongst his people. (coughs) His revelation of himself, his rule and word not be treated any longer as an empty thing. His worship not be shared, but given wholeheartedly to him by his people. And his goal? Well, Jesus' goal was to be consumed in vindicating the honour of his Father, to do his will in bringing glory to the Father by dying and rising again, dying for sinners, dying to make it possible for God to dwell amongst his people in reality and not just under a sign. Now, in the gift of the Spirit, as the Father and Son come to make their home with us, and then in the new heaven and earth forever, where there'll be no more temple because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So how should we respond to this Jesus who makes his motive and goal known? This Jesus who's not concerned what people think of him, who's not dependent on people's approval, this Jesus who has one passion, his Father's glory, and whose work, whose goal, so far exceeds any human expectation or construction. How should we respond to this Jesus who is uncompromising in teaching the truth of God, unrelenting in pursuing his Father's will, who won't accommodate his plans and actions to our convenience or good sense and who will never accept both and in our worship of God, both God and, say, money? Well, we see three responses to Jesus in this passage. Firstly, there are those who have no time for Jesus, who see his presence as a disruption and challenge his right to speak and act for God. People like the temple authorities who want to use their religion, their talk of God, to serve themselves and advance their own cause, increase their own wealth, whose religion is actually human-centred, man-centred their convenience, their enrichment, their needs. That's the test of what should be done. Oh, and their understanding should be the judge of right and wrong. People who want a both-and relationship with God, God and money, God and pleasure, God and my secret sin, a both-and relationship, which means they're always the ones in charge, always at the centre. Well, where that commitment exists, There will never be any time for Jesus because, as in the temple, his zeal for God exposes our love of self. His actions and teaching confront our sin, love of money, hypocrisy, pride. Jesus' zeal for God that says God should be given all our trust, all our thanks, all our praise, all our love, that says his word alone should rule in our relationship with him, Jesus' zeal for God will always frustrate and irritate those who want to keep self at the centre. And like those temple authorities, where we want to do that, our questioning will turn to hatred and a murderous determination to get rid of Jesus. Oh, and yes, Jesus' glory will condemn us. Don't be like those temple authorities 
Jesus has risen. He has demonstrated his authority. He has the right to speak and act for God. Yes, he has the right to drive out of your relationship with him what should never be there, your unforgiveness, your love of money, your sexual immorality, your measuring your obedience by your convenience. Don't be like them. Repent of putting yourself at the centre, even in your relationship with the living God. But there's a second group, the believers who can't be trusted. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to any of them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. It's puzzling, isn't it? Because we read in John 1.12 that those who believed in Jesus' name were those who were given the right to become children of God. But here we read of those who believe in his name. And Jesus, like God, knows them and will not entrust himself to them. You see, this group believes, seeing the signs, but the only Jesus they want is the one who does those signs for them. The Jesus who meets their expectations of what the Christ should be like and do for his people. This becomes clear as the gospel goes on, and especially we'll see in John 6. You see, there, having been miraculously fed, having seen this, they want to make Jesus king. They're all for Jesus as long as he is their man for their plans. But when Jesus starts talking of his death, of being the bread of life come down to give life to the world, it starts talking of the need to depend upon his death for life, this is not a Jesus. They want to follow the teachings too hard and they turn back and no longer follow. You see, these believers just have another form of human-centred religion where they put themselves, their understanding, their expectation, their needs at the centre. They admire Jesus, they respect Jesus, but the only Jesus they want is the one they can enlist to their agenda and serve their interests. Whether that agenda, say, is a kind of Christian nationalism or the pursuit of health and wealth in this life. When Jesus conforms to that, serves their agenda, oh yes, they're for him. And when he doesn't, they will abandon him. And Jesus knows that and knows that his heart is to please the Father. He's not interested in meeting the demands and expectations of his followers. We receive Jesus on his terms where he calls us to give ourselves to his agenda, giving up our agenda. When he calls us to give ourselves to the glory of the Father through our obedience to Jesus, doing what he says. In Jesus' eyes, we are followers or we are not. We do what he says or we don't belong to him. But there is a third group, the disciples. They admit they didn't understand at all when it was going on, that what Jesus said was often beyond them. Oh, and they recognise that they are not the heroes of the story. It's not their zeal, but Jesus' zeal that saves. But they hang in, or better still, Jesus hung in with them. 
And what marks them out is they are willing to be taught by the word. Their understanding of Jesus is informed by the scriptures. Verse 22, they believe the scripture. Whether the specific scriptures that spoke of the resurrection, like Psalm 16, or the scriptures more generally that taught of the coming of the Christ and his work, like Isaiah 53. They believed the scripture and they believed the word that Jesus had spoken, difficult as it was. You see, the disciples were willing to let God teach them about himself and what he would do. And they didn't limit or edit what God said. They didn't demand that, well, that God's word should say what they wanted, give them the God that they could either discount and ignore or make the servant of their own ambitions. They humbled themselves to receive from God through his incarnate son, the son who would die on the cross, the truth about himself. And these disciples who received the word found a God who could be known, a God who would come and live amongst them, a God whom they could always approach for grace and help, a God who saved and will give them eternal life a God better than they could ever imagine. Father, Son and Spirit, worthy of all their trust and obedience, worthy of their single-minded worship. Well, here in the temple, Jesus is revealed. His heart, the passion that drives him, that will drive him to the cross, his goal to do the Father's will in dying and rising and so become the one in whom God can be worshipped rightly, in spirit and truth. How are you responding to this Jesus? Have you no time for a Jesus who won't compromise with you? Are you believing in him only to the extent that it serves you and your agenda? Or are you a disciple, someone who has humbled him or herself to believe Jesus' word and deal with Jesus on his terms. Which are you? Be a disciple, perseveringly, for it is to disciples that Jesus gives life. Believe what he says about himself. Accept the truth of his words, even if you don't fully understand them at first. Become someone who is delighted that the living God insists on being at the centre insists on being loved with all your heart and mind and soul, delighted in him because you trust his son. And you know that his son, the Lord Jesus, committed to the Father's will, zealous for the Father's honour, confronting human-centred religion, saves. Saves can bring you, as you trust him, to live in the presence of the living God, at peace with him, worshipping him in truth, now and yes, forever, because the temple is destroyed and in three days Jesus rises from the dead. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we pray in your mercy that we would listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus when he exposes our self-centeredness. Listen to Jesus when his agenda is different from ours. We pray that we would listen to Jesus 
and trust him as he is. Your son, sent from you to do your will, dying on the cross for our sins, rising again and reigning now with all authority. Help us to listen to him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.